0: Right now, I'm walking through the ancient streets of the old city, Jerusalem, and it was built upon the foundations of many other cultures from many other times, and it's a lot like our faith. Our faith has come down to us through the stories, the events, and the lives of other people that God has used. And so, in this series, we're inviting you to walk along with us as we look at those ancient foundations for our faith. This series is called Origins. It's right over this cliff that an unusual event takes place in the life and ministry of Jesus. His place of ministry is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He gets in a boat and, and he comes over here, lands and walks up this hillside. And though there are thousands of people here, he doesn't go into the town. He he goes amongst the tombs where there's this crazy guy who screams and cuts himself. He's been rejected by everyone. A man that no one else wanted to be with, a man that no one else wanted to know, and yet Jesus came up to him and said, what's your name? That question led to a story that literally changed this world. It happened here, right next to the Sea of Galilee. Well good morning it 's so great to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you if you 're a guest, welcome to northridge if you 're a regular tender, thanks for being here for this ongoing series called origins and, and I, I have to tell you right at the beginning of this weekend, I cannot believe that we are already at the end of this series. This is the last weekend of origins and I hate it, I I always hate when a series is over. I start falling in love with it, I start embracing it, it's meaningful to me, impacts me, I know it impacts others, and, and it's hard to let go. But this one in particular, I've had so much feedback about its impact in people's lives and how it's breathed new life into the understanding of the Bible. And if you haven't been a part of this series yet, welcome to the last week. You came just in time. And we do give these talks away on northridgechurch.com. You can go and you can catch up on all the series we did. You can rewatch them and re-engage them. And I've got some good news because there's been so much positive interaction about the impact of this series. We decided to do something unusual. We went to Israel last year and usually we wouldn't repeat so quickly, but we have already decided that there's enough compelling interest and God seems to be moving at Northridge that we're going to do Israel 2014. In May of this coming year, we are going to return and give more of you an opportunity to go. And we're adding this year Jordan, which we didn't do uh, last year, and Jordan in particular, Petra. If you're at all interested in the potential of going to the Holy Land... Uh, we put together a brochure for you, Walk Where Jesus Walked, Israel Jordan 2014. You can pick this up at guest services at all of our campuses. And if you're watching online or you're someone who would rather go to the web, northridgechurch.com Israel 2014. And I just really encourage you, there could be a high level of interest and there are only so many spots, you know, check it out early so that you can at least know whether or not it'd be something you're interested in. We'd love to have you go. But this weekend, we, we finish off with a place in the region of the Holy Land that, quite honestly, wasn't at all holy in the days of Jesus. I mean, there was nothing holy about it. It was as pagan as you could get. It was, it was culturally antithetical to the reality of Jesus. And we're going to go through this place by verse by verse, going through Mark chapter 5. And in verse 1 of Mark 5, we find the Bible saying that they went across the lake, and the lake is the Sea of Galilee. They went across the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gerasenes. We, we have an indication of the place. It's, it's called by different names in different gospels, but to the best of our ability, we think it refers to a small town called Gersa, Located on the lake's eastern shore in the days of Jesus, most of its inhabitants were Gentiles, not Jews. It was a, it was a very different place than Capernaum, where Jesus took up his home and ministry during his adulthood. But, but we get closer to knowing exactly where it was when we turn to the end of the story in Mark 5 we're looking at in verse 20. And I'll give you these three words, we'll look at the whole verse later, but it tells us it was in the Decapolis, in the Decapolis. Now we know for sure it was on the eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. So you have your bearings. The the northwest corner is where Jesus' hometown, Capernaum, was. So they would have had to get in the boat and they would have gone across that that great abyss, the Sea of Galilee, at the time they would have considered it a dangerous abyss, to the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis, Deca being ten, was the region of ten Greek-Roman cities. And we actually, on this past trip, in 2013, went to one of the Decapolis cities, Betchon, and we have pictures of it. This is a a picture of the archaeological dig, and this would be the the center of the main city, Betchon. Uh, and you can see they had everything. The, the marble was opulent, it was though a small down version, it was like Rome. And the architecture was beautiful. They had the, the best of education, the education, the gymnasium was in the far top right of corner of that city. And then they also had theater and financial districts. I mean this was a huge place. We went deeper in, took some closer up pictures. You have the theater itself And they were very big into the arts and very big into entertainment. Very different from Judaism and the place where Jesus would have lived and done his ministry. And then you can see the boulevard with all of the marble pillars. It was just a majestic setting. You would have seen chariots coming in and soldiers and businessmen. It was amazing. But what you need to know about the ten cities of the Decapolis is that the culture of these cities was far away from the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean as far away as you could get. You know, Jesus was declaring an, an absolute truth, the truth that came from one God. And these cultures embraced the absence of truth, you know, kind of very much like today, what, what, whatever feels good, do it to each one their own. And they, they worshipped just a multitude of gods. You couldn't even identify them all. I mean, it was antithetical. And and very much like today, these cities were prosperous and the center of the culture. And so they believed in the power of man. They really worshipped the creation instead of the creator. And they believed in the power of money. They were very, very materialistic. And they really gave themselves over to the pursuit of pleasure. They, they were in hedonism. It was all about sensual pleasure in that day. And it wasn't the kind of place that you would ever think about Jesus going to and sharing his story because, you know, traditional views of Jesus is that he was on a flannel graph somewhere hiding away from the real world and couldn't make sense of it. But the truth is he cared about taking his light into the center of darkness. And and the message of Jesus literally did transform the Decapolis in many ways. These cities, though pagan, ultimately became very influenced by Christ and Christianity like Rome itself did. But most would scoff about the idea of of going and telling your story about Jesus and the Decapolis, and it could be transformed. But that's exactly what happened. But Jesus didn't do it in the way you would think. You'd think about him going in and doing all these miracles and changing their mind and convincing them and showing them proofs. But that's not how he did it. The way he brought change to the Decapolis was the most unlikely of ways, and it happened through the most unlikely of persons. And so let's look at the story that took place in the region of the Decapolis on the edge, the shoreline, the eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And we'll continue in Mark chapter 5. We already saw that they got in the boat and they crossed the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he literally tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him, this man had supernatural strength. And night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And therein we have the quality of his life. Obviously, he was a man that had been disfigured by his choices, distorted and become dysfunctional and literally destroyed the potential that God had placed in him, was so impacted by the evil in him that he lived among the bones of dead people and the tombs of dead people. No one wanted to be anywhere near him and he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This man was all alone. Calling out in agony. And and it seems as if no one heard him. No one even cared about him. They, they of course, as we can relate to in our day, were focused on building their own kingdom, take care of their own lives. And there, there was no hope of helping this guy. This guy was beyond human help and... He was an inconvenience, so they stuck him, you know, where no one cared to go, with dead men's bones. But Jesus was different, you see, because Jesus' kingdom was all about helping the hurting people, helping the rejected people, helping the people defined by failure. And so so Jesus, unlike the people in this man's life who no longer heard him or cared, Jesus Heard him and cared, in fact, so much so that he came. He hopped in a boat, crossed the Sea of Galilee, and went just to spend some time with this man. The story continues in Matthew, Mark chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. When when this man saw Jesus from a distance, He, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Now, I don't want to really slow down or detour from the story too much, but I'm going to tell you that that was really weird for me. I mean, you know, uh, don't torture me, don't torture me, don't torture me. What's going on? And I mean, when I would look at this guy's life, I'd go, are you kidding? Don't torture me. This guy, this guy's already tortured himself to the highest extent. I mean, his choices were so messed up, and his choices were so dramatically poor that, that he had ruined his own life, messed it up so much that, that he wasn't even close to the man that God had created him to be. And yet when Jesus comes up to him, the first thing he screams out is, don't torture me, don't torture me. I mean, seriously? And then it finally hit me how relevant this is to my life and to our world. Because you see, we too make choices that mess up our lives. We too make choices that ruin our lives. We too have, have gone in directions in our life that have kind of needlessly tortured us a little bit and yet at least in my life when someone came to me and introduced the idea of God and following God and trusting God and living by God's truth I, I, I reacted in violent ways I don't need it God I mean that ruined my life God's just interested in taking all the pleasure and all the fun and all the fulfillment out of my life. And do you know how ludicrous that is? I mean, it's like I was living a life of emptiness. I was living a life, not a fullness, but a life of loss and despair. I had already ruined and messed up my life totally, but I was worried that God was going to torture me and ruin my life. That's exactly what this guy is doing, and I bet you you can relate too. There are many people in our world they're already walking and living messed up lives, but they think God's the one that's going to come in and torture them and ruin them, and that's what's going on. But the story continues. Look at Mark 5 verse eight. For Jesus had said to him, "Come out of this man, you evil spirit." Then Jesus asked him, and these four words just, just explode with emotion in me." Jesus asked him, "What is your name? It's a big deal. This is a man who had been rejected and avoided by everyone. This is a man who the world was trying to forget. This is a man who was hidden away amidst the tombs of dead people and dead bones. They didn't want him near them, but this is a man that Jesus wanted to know, and Jesus wanted to know him in a personal way, by name. There's nothing more personal than a person's name, and Jesus says, what's your name? Now, unfortunately, as you're going to see as the story unfolds, this guy's... This guy's true identity is so messed up by evil that that he can't even share who he really is. He doesn't know. He's been lost in his bad choices and his failures, just like so many in this world today. They've lost who they really are and in the destructive choices they've made. Mark chapter 5, verse 9, you see it. My name is Legion. Instead of saying, my name is Mark or Zacchaeus, it's Legion. Weird name. Because it's not his name, for we are many, speaking of the evil spirits within him. And and he begged uh, through the energy and the force of the demons in him, he begged Jesus again and again not to send them, all of these evil spirits, out of the area. And there was a large herd of pigs. This was a Gentile area, not a Jewish area, so pork was a big part of their diets. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs... Allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs, the herd. About 2,000 in number. Think about that many evil spirits and this one guy dominating, destroying his life. 2,000 in number. They, these, these pigs rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned and you saw it in the video the steep cliff that would lead down into the Sea of Galilee on the eastern shore and you can kind of see how that would be true here and the water levels used to be up and so they could have easily just plunged in and that's exactly what they did they drowned and those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town in the countryside they went into the ten cities, the Decapolis or many of them in the countryside and they brought people in to see what's going on and the people went out to see what had happened now done a lot of research on this and talked to some people who are in the know, and according to what I've been told and discovered, in this particular region, the pig was the symbol of one of their primary gods, and you need to know they had all kinds of different gods and symbols in different places, but the pig in this region was the symbol of one of their primary gods, and so what you can know, because context gives you understanding, you can know that Jesus was, in this moment, doing the same thing he was doing all the way through his story. Because from Matthew all the way to John, when he ascended back into heaven in the book of Acts, you, you can know, he was showing that he, not the gods that they had adopted, not the gods that they were living for, not the gods that they were worshiping and looking to, but, but he was the one who was the true God, that he controlled and he had the power over all their false gods. And, so in this case, just as he did when he calmed the storm. See, in that day, they thought it was the gods, their gods, that were creating the storms. Well, Jesus, when he calmed the storm, was saying, I have power and control over your gods. And they saw the great abyss, the Sea of Galilee, as the as the dwelling place of the gods of the underworld. A very scary thing in that particular day. And when Jesus walked on the water, he was saying, I can walk on the head of your gods. I am in control control have power over your gods. And when he cast these evil spirits into the pigs and they all jumped into the Sea of Galilee, he was saying, I have control and power over your gods. In Mark chapter 5, verse 15, the story continues. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man, the they are, the, all the people who came from the region of the Decapolis and wanted to see what was going on. They, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. Only now, he wasn't running around naked, cutting himself and crying like a wolf in the dark. Now he was sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And these next words are telling. And they were afraid. Now you got to remember, this isn't 21st century America where we've, we've got Pfizer and Merck creating drugs that can you know, put us down. You know? Calm us down and start, fix things or disorder in our lives. This is This is back then when this was beyond human understanding. This was beyond human ability. This was beyond their experience. And all of a sudden, this crazy lunatic whom they had written off, this crazy lunatic who had only one solution, hide him among the tombs, he was sitting dressed in his right mind, and it scared them out of their mind. You see, when they saw the dramatic and real life change here, something beyond human ability and experience, it scared them because this wasn't the kind of God they were used to. Now think about this. They were used to gods that functioned according to the natural. I mean, this is why they they worshipped natural things. They worshipped the sun, okay? The sun's an amazing thing that God created. I know, it's an amazing thing. But to them, the sun... Came up in the morning and it went down at night. And then it repeated. It came, the it came up in the morning and went down at night. It came up in the morning and went down at night. It came up in the morning and went down at night. You know what this God was? This God was predictable. This God was something they could understand. This God was something they could live with. This God was something if they were afraid at night, they'd know be gone in the day. If they were afraid of the day, they'd be gone at night. This is a God that they could, in a sense, control, predictable they could be accustomed to. They did the same with the moon. They also created all kinds of fertility gods. They gave the power of gods the fertility. Like they brought rain. They brought the harvest. And they brought, you know, new babies into their families. And, and so this was a natural deal. They would worship gods who brought rain. Here's the thing. You can know this. Even if, it's, even if it's without rain for a long time, rain's going to come again. You can know this, crops are going to grow. You can know this, babies are going to be born. And if you don't know how that happens, I'm not going to tell you here this morning. I mean, it's like, these are normal things. And so what you realize is they worship those things which were in the realm of their understanding. They worship these things which were predictable, that they could expect, that they'd grown accustomed to. But all of a sudden, there was this God that they were confronting. That was not predictable. That was bringing in the unexpected. He wasn't doing the natural. He was doing the supernatural. And it scared them to death. It was beyond their ability to explain. It was beyond their ability to control. It was beyond their ability to predict. And it scared them. And and I just need you to know that the same is true today. I I know most of us aren't bowing down to the sun and worshiping it. Though some of you with your leathery skin, you know. Um, I know most of us aren't bowing down to... The moon and bowing down to fertility gods. I I get that. But in truth, we're doing the same thing. We have gods by all kinds of different names. And they're in our control, it seems. We, we, We worship things that we can predict. We worship things that allow us to expect them. We worship things that don't surprise us. I believe one of the reasons that people aren't afraid of God today, and I'm not talking about a shivering fear that causes us to never want to be near him. I'm talking about the fear that says, he's God and I'm not. I'm talking about the fear that says, I'm accountable to him. He's the one that's going to correct all injustice in this world. He's the one that I'm going to ultimately be judged by. He's holy and I'm not. I'm talking about the fear of God. And the reason most people aren't afraid of God today is because They aren't seeing the supernatural work of God in the life of those people who claim him. They're not seeing God's work. They're just seeing natural things. People who claim to follow Jesus tend to live the same natural messed up lives that people who don't follow Jesus and there's no difference. But I'm going to tell you, because some of us have experienced genuine life transformation and when the people who knew us then know us now, they pay attention. They take notice. This is unusual. This is something they don't experience religion. There's something going on that's outside of them, their understanding and knowledge. And that's what was going on here. The story continues in Mark 5, verse 16. Those who had seen it, they saw, you know, the pig's, and they saw this guy become sane, and those people who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. And then, then look at this interesting reaction. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. <laughs> really? All their life? They're saying, We want a God who will work, we want a God with power, we want a God who can change our life. We want a God to do this. And then when this God shows up, they're begging him to leave. And I, I think it makes sense that they were begging him to leave from two things. First of all, This God was unpredictable. This God was outside of their understanding, and so it was a scary thing. I also believe this God wasn't good for their business. 2,000 of their pigs just jumped into the thing, and so they pleaded with him to go. See you later. But you need to know, by nature, I know some of our lives have been changed, and some of us long to have this this God who's in control and powerful, in control and powerful. Over our lives. But most of us, in fact, all of us by nature, don't want that real God around. We don't want that real God working because here's what happens He tends to mess up our plans, He tends to make our lives uncomfortable. I mean, we. We knew how to make a living. We knew how to compromise here and to compromise there and to, to scrape off some values over here so that we could live within this culture. And then he shows up and he messes up everything. And we, by nature, don't want him around because he brings change. We can't control him. He controls us. We can't predict him. We have to follow him. Here, here's the reality of who we are by nature. We, we love the idea of God. This is why we make gods out of things that aren't gods. We love the idea of God. We just don't like the real thing. This is why we, we worship statues and symbols and rituals and traditions and spiritual icons because, see, they don't, they don't mess up our lives. We can come to visit them once a week or once a month or once in a while and, and you know, But then we can go on and live our lives. But when the real God shows up, he kind of messes things up. Our plans have to change. And I think too many of us love the idea of God and sing about the idea of God and and talk about the idea of Jesus, but but we don't want the real thing. The story continues. Mark 5.18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now there's so much in those couple of verses, and and I hope that you'll look into them on your own and start trying to pursue the ideas, but let me give you a couple of the things that really impact me in that passage. The first is this. That that passage tells me that Jesus came all the way across the Sea of Galilee to this unusual place, the Decapolis, this place antithetical to his life and ministry and what you would normally think of Jesus. And he did it for one reason. To talk to this man, this one man. He didn't come for the multitudes of people. He didn't come for the entertainment theater. He came for this one man, a man that no one else cared about, a man that no one else wanted, a man that lived among the bones of dead people in their tombs. I mean... Jesus made this journey for him. And you know this because Jesus got in the boat, he crossed the Sea of Galilee and he walked up this hill, he talked to this one guy and when he was done talking to this guy, he walked back down, got in the boat and left. To which some people go, yeah, but they pleaded with him to leave. That's why he left. Really? They pleaded with him to leave every place he went. He didn't leave. He came for this one guy. Do you know how meaningful this is? He cares about the one Least cared about in this world. He cares about the one whose story seems to be beyond help and beyond hope. The insignificant one that's written off by the world. He cares about that person, which is meaningful to me because I was that person. And it could be meaningful to you because many of you were there as well. It's meaningful. But the story takes a weird note. I mean, you heard me read it. This guy's life had been lost no one cared about him and then this one person comes and cares about him and, and his life has changed. And the guy asks a very legitimate question. Can, can I come with you? There's nothing here for me, man. I mean, my family doesn't care. My friends don't care. No one cares. I mean, these dead people don't care. You care. Can I get in the boat with you? These guys are following you. I want to follow you too. And boy, that makes sense to me. He Finally, because most people say no to following Jesus. Here's a guy that wants to follow Jesus. And he asks the smart question. Can I go with you? And Jesus does the unexpected. He says, no. Are you kidding me? I mean, this seems unreasonable. This seems downright cruel. This guy finally says, in the world that says no to Jesus, this guy finally says, yes, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, sorry, that's, you know, you can't come. I'm telling you, the real God messes up your plans. He's got different plans than you. He says, no, I'm not going to change your context. And see, that's what's really big here. This guy says, this place I live messed me up. And so I want to go where you live with you because I think that'll help fix me. And Jesus says, no, it's not the place you live. It's not the context. It's not the people who raise you. It's not the people who hurt you. They might have hurt you. But your, your context isn't what messed you up. Your choices are what messed you up. And now you've chosen me and I transform you from the inside out so that you can live a life of light in any context. No, you can't come with me. I want you to go into into the homes, into the communities of the people who rejected you and hurt you most and I want you to tell them your story about what I've done for you so that they can ultimately praise me as well. Wow. It's one thing for Jesus to say that. It's another thing for the guy to do it. And in those couple of verses I read, This guy with no whining, with no complaining, with no pleading, with no grabbing his ankles and not letting him go, with no saying that I'm going to stop giving to you, Jesus, and I'm I'm not going to go to church anymore if you don't do this, with none of that crap. And yes, for you religious people, I just said crap, and I was thinking another word that would have been effective, but I chose not to use it. all that other crap that we throw at God when he's not doing our stuff, doing what we want him to do. You know what this guy did? The guy said, okay. And he went back to the people who were the most, the people who didn't care, back to his community, and he shared the story of Jesus. He just obeyed. It's an amazing deal. Very challenging to me because I'm gonna tell you, um, I know that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, not my will, but your will be done, I know. And I pray those words, but the difference between this guy and me is that, he meant them. Here's my will. I'd like to go with you, but if, you, if you've got different plans for me, I'm going to take your plans because when I make plans for myself, it always ruins my life. I'm going to take your plans because I believe you can make my life. And he obeyed them. This is an amazing thing. You know, 1 John 2, 3 says, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Not if we show up in church once in a while, not if we sing a song, not if we read the Bible once in a while, if we obey his commands. This guy had genuine faith because he obeyed and it challenges me. Because when God's plans are different than mine, I have a problem with that often. Don't you? In fact, very often, I'm, I'm doing stuff for God so that I get leverage over him so that he has to do what I want him to do. Aren't you like this? Are you like this or are you like a robot or something? I mean, this is what we're like. And then when he doesn't do what he wants, we go, you owe me, man. You owe me. But this guy wasn't looking for leverage over Jesus. This guy was looking for the transformation that Jesus offered, and he just followed him. It's an amazing deal. And now let's look at the rest of the story. Because he was willing to obey Jesus, to let Jesus mess up his plans... Look what happened in Matthew chapter 15 verses 29 through 31. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. This is a different time, a whole different event. He was somewhere doing some ministry stuff and he left that place and he once again went along the Sea of Galilee. And then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, if you just read past that context without understanding it, you're never going to open up the truth to this. But in Mark chapter 7 verse 31, we find that he's in the Decapolis again. And so... Doesn't it sound familiar? He went up on a mountainside, he talked to this one guy, and he left, he got in the boat, and now he's going along the Sea of Galilee again, he's going up on a mountainside. This isn't, there are lots of mountainsides that are around the Sea of Galilee, but but he's in the Decapolis again. I don't know that it's on the same blade of grass, but I know it's in the same vicinity, and, and he's there in the Decapolis. What happened the last time in the Decapolis? He walked up, he talked to one man and he left, and the multitude of people that were there pleaded with them to go. They weren't interested in listening to his teaching. They were interested in getting him out of there. No one wanted him. But now all of a sudden, a short season has gone by and he's in the same exact place. And look at the difference as we continue in Matthew 15, 29 through 31. Great crowds came to him. What? In this place where the crowds asked him to leave, now great crowds are coming to him, leaving the cities of the Decapolis, leaving the marble and their comfortable lives, and they're coming out to this hillside by the Sea of Galilee on the eastern shore. They're coming to him, and look at what they're doing. They're bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they're laying these people at his feet, and he healed them. And the people were all amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. I'm going to tell you, i read through that so many times and I didn't understand it. It was the same place. So I never knew to ask the question. But then I realized, this is the same place. So I had to ask the question, and I know you're asking it. Where did the crowds come from? What created the difference between when they were pushing him to leave and now they were clamoring to get close to him? What happened? Well, it's simple. There's only one logical answer. The great crowd of people bringing all their hurting and broken and messed up people were the result of this one man's story. You see, this guy had a plan. He wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus had a different plan. He wanted him to go and share that story with his own people in the Decapolis. And this guy was smart enough to know something very often I don't think about and you don't think about. This guy was smart enough to know that when Jesus' plans are different than ours, His plans are the better plans. Our plans will mess up our lives. His plans will make our lives. This is so important. This guy went and told a story, and as a result of his story, he changed the most unlikely of places to change, the Decapolis. This place that was bent on pleasure and prosperity and power and education, was transformed by the story of a person who had been rejected by everyone before Jesus touched him. And now people wanted Jesus to do the same for them and those they loved that he had done for this messed up guy who used to live among the tombs. Please think about this. This is so important. The least likely guy changed the place, least likely to change in fact we have there's another city in the decapolis region Cesidea and we didn't go there this last year but we've gone there on several other occasions and Cesidea though once a pagan greek roman city became very christianized as rome was transformed so were the cities of the decapolis and we've been in places that were uh, churches devoted to to following christ and In fact, in history, there's a story of the Bishop of Cicida, a guy who became the bishop over the entire region following Christ, and he was a part of writing the Nicene Creed, which is one of the great historical documents speaking of Christian truth and understanding in the day. And when I think of that bishop and everyone he influenced, I think of this man's story because every single person who ever followed Christ in the Decapolis came from this one man's story, a person that the world had written off. And here's here's the point you need to get. One person's story can change the world. One person's story can change the world. No matter how unlikely the person, no matter how unlikely the world, one story can change it. Because that's exactly what happened here in the Decapolis. No one would have believed the Decapolis would ever change. It doesn't make sense. There's no way. Would New York City change because you went and shared your story in Times Square? Don't think so. And yet that's exactly what happened, not because his story was that powerful, but because the powerful God used his story to transform this place. Only God, only God, only God. I, I'm curious. Now, think carefully about this. My life was ultimately changed because of the, the story of another person's life and transformation. I grew up in religion and it made no sense to me. I didn't see any God there, but then I met some people whose lives had been transformed and I wanted a life like their life and their story brought transformation to my life, brought me to Jesus ultimately. And I'm curious, how many of you would say that you're a Christ follower? And I know not everyone here is a Christ follower. I'm so glad that you're here or you're watching and you're not a Christ follower yet. Keep seeking, we want you to follow Christ. But how many of you who are Christ followers would say, I ultimately followed Christ because of another person's story? Would you raise your hand? Another person's story impacted my life. A lot of hands. That's right. Now, I know a lot of you didn't raise your hands because that's the way you are. You refuse to play games with me, and I understand that. You refuse to move. Raising your hand just seems like a very unspiritual thing to do. I get it. You're probably Baptist background or something like that. I don't know. But, But the truth is, every single one of our stories is the result of another person's story. Because you see, we wouldn't know Jesus if Paul didn't share his story and Peter didn't share his story and Mark didn't share his story and Luke didn't share his story. None of us would know Jesus if someone hadn't shared their story. Wow. I saw another reality in this text that surprised me that I want you to see and it's the fact that this is the story. The story of this guy that was once described as Legion because of the evil spirits in him. This This guy's story is the story of every Christ follower. It's my story as a Christ follower, and if you're a Christ follower, it's your story. Because you see, every single one of us was, in one way or another, lonely and broken and helpless and defeated and defined by failure. Every single one of us was separated from God, distorted from what Jesus had created us to be. And yet Jesus in this world that ignores us, heard our cry. And yet Jesus in this world that doesn't care about us, cared about us. And Jesus in this world that's not willing to be inconvenienced by our problems, left heaven and came to earth to bear our problems. In fact, our problem was that our sin... Resulted in death, separation from the God of life. So he died on that cross in our place, and then he rose again so that he could transform us like he transformed this man, man, this man, and he wants to heal and deliver and transform and forgive and set all of us free. This is our story. Look at Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and every one of us needs to be that new creation. Every one of us has old that's baggage and we need new to come, but only Jesus can deliver it. Religion won't do it. The gods of this world won't do it, but Jesus can and will. He's heard your cry. He understands your needs and he's come, but you have to embrace him like this guy did. Have you? If not, this is your moment. Now, we're going to move into an experiential thing in this service to end it off and you don't want to miss it but before we move into that I'm going to ask if you'd just pray with me for a minute would you would you just like bow your head just for a second and pray with me and if you're here and you say you know I've never experienced him transforming me from the inside out I've never experienced the the new life that he came to give me the old gone the new has come then pray with me take my words then make them yours just just inside to God say Jesus I need you to forgive me, to fix what's broken in me, to fill what's empty in me. And I believe, though I've sinned against you, though I've failed profoundly, that you died on the cross to forgive me. I'm trusting you for that. And you rose again so that I might have a new life. And by faith, I'm asking for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we move into our experience together, I I just really want to encourage you, if you just prayed with me, please let us know. If you're in one of our three campus settings, that we give you these programs, and on the inside is this little perforated card. It's a connection card. It's a way that people can communicate with us about what's going on in their life or things we can pray for, questions they have. But it's a way that those of you who just prayed with me can kind of move to the next step. just fill out the top part and then check off the circle at the bottom where it says you prayed to receive Jesus. And we've put together a letter that can help you take next steps in your relationship with God. And all you have to do to get it to us is put it in one of the boxes at all the different exits at all of our different locations and and we'll send you that. And if you're watching Dorthridge On Demand online, then all you have to do is hit the What Next button and we'll do the same for you. It's a big deal. Now, like with this guy, we really want Jesus to change our world when we come to him. I mean, it's not enough that he transforms us on the inside. We want him to change the world. Okay, now, now that I've come to you, I haven't had a job. You better give me a job. I haven't had a good husband. You better kill him and get me a good one. You know, you better, okay, maybe that's not your prayer, but you get the point. You know, we, we want him to change our circumstances. Okay, I, I've let you inside. Now, you're going to need to change my outside. I want to get in the boat with you. But you need to know that's not going to happen very often, especially the killing the husband thing. That's not going to happen very often. But this guy said, okay, my plans have gotten me in trouble. So I'm going to let you change my plans to your plans. And I'm going to trust that that will set me free. And that's what this guy did. That's what we need to do. And what did this guy do? He, he went and shared his story in the world that he came out of. And here's the truth that I want you to see from this man's story. Our mission in life, and we do have a mission, we do have a purpose. Our mission in life is to tell our story. That's our mission. Our, our mission isn't to be the best at our vocation. We should do the best in our vocation, but that's not our mission. Our mission is to tell our story. Look what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When, when you've experienced Jesus transform you from the inside out, you'll be my witnesses, Jesus says, my storytellers in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We have a purpose And it's to tell our story. Most of us are fighting against it or ignoring it or hiding from it. Most of us are afraid to share our story. Most of us are following Jesus in secret. We're messing up. Because our mission is to tell our story. It's our mission. In fact, look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. He says, you're the light of the world. He's talking to those of us who've been changed like this guy. You're the light of the world. Your light shines before men, so let it shine that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Our whole mission is to be the light in this world. And this is a world of darkness, just like the Decapolis was dark. This guy's insignificant story didn't seem to be a big enough story to change the Decapolis, but it did. And it reminds me of, of a lamp that I got, and I'll try and show it to you. It's, this is a real lamp from the days of Jesus. Uh, When I was traveling to Israel one time, I met an archeologist through a good friend of mine that was there and and, uh, this guy is a part of digs and he in Jerusalem dug up this very unique lamp and made it affordable, lost all kinds of money so that I could afford it and bring it back. But this lamp is one that they would put oil in here and then they would light the tip here and it's probably from the first or early second centuries and there's actually the charcoal from the burning candle. This was a legitimately burned candle at the time or light. And what's unique about this particular one is that it's got both fish which became the symbol of Christ followers and the Star of David carved into it. Most of them are kind of smooth. This has carvings on it. And this was from the period of Jesus or shortly afterward and from the city of Jerusalem. And it, it represented a true Christ-following Jew. But they would light this up. And I don't know about you, when I first saw this lamp, I said, that's so teeny. I mean, gosh, how big could the flame be? But here's the answer. Big enough to bring light in the darkness big enough to bring light into the darkness. And I realized that what I had so long thought of my story was wrong. What I had so long thought of our story was wrong. You see, this guy's story was so insignificant that the world wrote him off. And yet this story, though small and seemingly insignificant, changed a world that seemed unchangeable. And though our story might be small and seemingly insignificant and not very meaningful, it's our mission to tell our story. And it's not the power or size of our story. It's the power and size of the God who is now in our story that can change the world. But it will never change the world if we keep complaining that he's not doing what we want him to do. If we complain that we can't get in his boat. If we complain that, that he's changing our agenda where the world changes is when we finally say, I'll do what you want me to do. And we start sharing the story. And I, I want you to see it, the application. It's so very, very, very important. When we obey, like this guy did, stop whining, stop complaining, stop getting bitter at God for not getting it. When we obey and we fulfill our mission, we tell our story. God then uses us to wake our world. You know, our sphere of influence, our world at work, our world of the community, our world, our thems, the people that we know and that know us, God uses it to wake our world up to Jesus. And you know what happens when we tell our story and God uses it to wake the world up to Jesus? Now, this is going to blow you away. Here's what happens. The world changes. The world doesn't need presidents and kings to change. The world needs God to change. And the way the world finds God is by hearing the story of people like you and me share how he changed us. And when that happens, the world changes. But before that can happen, we have to wake up. And when we wake up, then we have to stand up and we have to raise our hands. And so we're going to have an experience of just that right now. And I encourage you to make sure that you've woken up, that you're willing to stand up, and that you're willing to raise your hand because it's through your story that God will change the world.